Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. Some years ago, as I was nearing the end of college, my dear friend Kathy decided that she no longer wished to go by the name Kathy and wanted to be referred to as Kathleen. If memory serves, and she has denied this, but I'm almost certain this is how it went down, she sent out an email to our group of friends announcing this change. And frankly, we weren't having any of this shit. She was our Kathy, and nothing was going to change that. Now, I do recognize that this was pretty thoughtless of me, but I just don't always do well with change. I have often felt a bit of reluctance towards it, but I do usually come around. It just takes me a while sometimes. Being someone that listens to and thinks a lot about music, I've had to learn to be okay with this concept. Bands will break up or go on extended hiatus, or maybe a key member leaves. And my initial reaction is usually that whatever's coming next is probably not going to be as good. Sometimes that's definitely the case. But more often than not, especially if the artists are of the truly special sort, it can be just as good, if not better. But I get it. As a music fan, I am definitely someone who believes in the idea of a band. You know, John, Paul, George, and Ringo. But honestly, and this is probably going to hurt some people, including my mom, I'd put All Things Must Pass up against any Beatles record. You know, sometimes change is good. I prefer Doug Yule on bass. And I'm glad that John Kell was free to eventually make something like Paris 1919. And also, I really love Superchunk. I wholeheartedly welcomed their return in 2010. But I also believe that some of Mac McCann's best work is on Portostatic's 2005 album, Bright Ideas. I first became aware of McCann because I was a teenager in the 90s that loved indie rock, so that pretty much meant I also loved Superchunk and Merge Records. The first record I really got into by Superchunk was 1995's Here's Where the Strings Come In, which I remember purchasing from a Sam Goody's at Shannon Mall when I was 15 or 16. I had first heard Superchunk through the soundtrack to the Richard Linkletter film Suburbia, but also likely knew of them through my friends Jeremy and Eric, who were older and cooler and knew all about cool independent music. So when I saw this CD at the mall, I figured it'd be an album for me, and it was. Soon enough, I became a Superchunk fan, and Merge Records, the label co-founded by McCann and Superchunk bassist Laura Balance, became a trusted voice in my constant search for new and exciting music. So many records that I have loved have been put out by that label. So it was natural that I would eventually find my way to Portostatic and become a fan of those records, especially Bright Ideas. It's a record that has held a special place in my heart. Released during a time in which Superchunk were in a period of reduced activity and Portostatic had become McCann's main musical outlet, the record came out during my last semester of college. A strange time of transition, uncertainty, and change. And if you'll remember, my friend Kathy wanted to be Kathleen. Instead of embracing that change, I put on Portostatic's bright ideas, and I listened. 
This is the story of that record. Uh, my name is Mac McCon. One of the bands that I've had over the years is a kind of lineup shifting group called Portostatic. guitar and sing mainly. I play a little bit of keyboards maybe on a couple things, but mainly um, playing guitar and singing. Mac McCon would spend the earliest years of his childhood in Florida before moving with his family at the age of 12 to Durham, North Carolina. It is there that McCon would form his first bands and begin writing songs. I think I probably started writing songs when I was in like junior high or high school when I, you know, first, like, learned how to play guitar. I mean, I was trying to learn songs by, like, ACDC and The Who and stuff, like, my favorite bands, you know? But then I started playing music with friends probably, I'm going to say I was probably 16 or something like that, 15, 15 or 16. We weren't really good enough to play covers and we um, at first anyway, and so, like, we were just kind of making up songs, you know? Eventually, the first like band that I was in that played like club shows and stuff when I was in high school, we did learn some covers and had original songs. And we we went to a studio, a local studio called Lloyd Street Studios. Um, it had a four track reel to reel, if I remember correctly, and recorded some demos, maybe like four songs or whatever. And then, you know, we took them to the radio station and the local college stations would put them on what they called carts back then, which was like, they look kind of like eight track tapes, but they're just like one song on each. Um, and that was like, if you didn't have a proper release, you know, like a, a record or whatever, like they would put your song on a cart and so DJs could play it. And that was pretty exciting. And then we eventually recorded another demo at a, a studio run by this guy, West Show who um, I still know, he still is here in the area, but he he went on to start the studio um, Overdub Lane. It was called something different when we went there. It was in his house. And then he, he eventually had a couple different locations called Overdub Lane, and that's still a place that Superchunk works now. It is while attending Columbia University that McCon would begin to experiment with home recording. I got, as a graduation present, when I graduated high school and went away to college, my parents got me a four-track cassette recorder, uh, made by Yamaha and uh, it was kind of complicated to use actually this four track cassette thing like I was it was not super intuitive it took me a while to figure it out I had that and I had it in my dorm room and I was like I would like mess around a little bit with trying to record there and um, eventually got a 
a Tascam Porta Studio, which I still have. Actually, I'm lending it to someone today because I need people occasionally need to use one of those things, and um, that's a great machine, the Porta Studio. In 1989, the same year in which he and bassist Laura Balance start Merge Records, McCon and Balance would form Super Chunk, with drummer Chuck Garrison and guitarist Jack McCook in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Originally going by the name Chunk, the band would play a vital role in Chapel Hill's emerging local music scene, and with the addition of permanent members Jim Wilbur and John Worcester, Super Chunk and Merge Records would become quintessential parts of American independent music throughout the 1990s and beyond. As Super Chunk's frontman, McCann would initially be the primary songwriter on the band's earliest material, but as the band progressed, Albums would become more collaborative efforts. It started out more like me. Well, it was kind of a combination, actually. Sometimes I would record like four track ideas and demos and then just so I didn't forget them kind of thing. And then we learn them as a band. Sometimes we would just kind of I would have one part and then we would just play it and practice over and over again while everybody else figured out their parts. Um, As the band went on. I would say starting with mm, maybe uh, here's where the strings come in. That was the first time we would, instead of me kind of making demos or come like starting to write songs and then showing them to the rest of the band, that was where we, uh, I mean, even on the early records, people would kind of make up their own parts. But here's where the strings come in, if I remember correctly, it's kind of the first record where we just started by everyone just into a practice space and starting from scratch that way and everyone just kind of you know writing the songs literally all together at the same time and that kind of proceeded that way up until here's the shutting up really wanting an outlet to explore other musical ideas McCann starts portostatic in 1993 with the release of the starter seven inch on comedian tom sharpling's 18 wheeler label the full length i hope your heart is not brittle would be released on Merge the following year. really just that 
you know, I did have this four track and I was getting into different kinds of music and, and buying like keyboards and things like that when we'd be on tour, you know, in thrift shops and stuff. And at that time, at least, it wasn't really something that fit into the scheme of a super chunk record. And, you know, being inspired by like Sebado and these kind of, and, and people doing home recordings and, and me also just wanting to maybe make music that wasn't always quite so full on as super chunk was at that time in terms of, you know, punkiness. Um, I just started recording stuff at home and, and duck key studios, which is here in North Carolina where my vans before super chunk had recorded was a affordable and like really good place to record. So I was making records that were kind of a combination of home recordings and duck key studio recordings. And I think duck key at the time was 16 tracks maybe. And it was also fun just to play with different people, friends from other bands, you know, collaborating with people that I didn't normally get to play with. Um, and just making, you know, real different kinds of music than than what Superchunk was doing. And so it was kind of this cool parallel thing to have. Throughout the 90s and early 2000s, McCann would maintain a steady release of portostatic material while also continuing to tour and record with Superchunk. Following the tour to promote the band's 2003 compilation album, Cup of Sand, Superchunk would enter a period of reduced activity. When Superchunk kind of took a break from recording new records after Here's to Shutting Up in 2001, um, I mean, we would play a couple shows a year kind of thing, you know, but or maybe record a track here and there, but that's when kind of Portostatic, I, I, I made several Portostatic records in the course of a few years there because Superchunk was kind of on hiatus in a way, mm-hmm. on reco- recording hiatus at least. The first one, I, I bought a eight-track tape machine, reel-to-reel, Tascam, and started recording it at home on that, and that's how I made Summer of the Shark. And then by the time I started working on songs for Bright Ideas, I kind of wanted to have it be more of like a band recording, like a rock band recording, because I super chunked, like I said, wasn't really doing anything like that. So I, I made demos at home, and uh, I had the the reel to reel, and I also had a I got a Roland um, sixteen track uh, like digital recorder thing, and so I, it was easy to make demos on that. And but I like I said, I kind of wanted it to be like a rock band record, and um, we'd had a kid, uh, our, our daughter Una was born in. Uh, 2003 and so in 2005 it was harder to record at home like it was during summer the shark because i had there's like a sleeping child often in the house so i rented a space to make demos in i think one of the goals was to kind of have it be seen as not just a quote-unquote side project you know what i mean um because at that point it was like my main band because i knew it was going to be like a band record recorded in a studio, some of the songs are like the most super chunk like on Bright Ideas, I think, you know, mm-hmm. um, because I wasn't trying to, I wasn't worried about um, having it be quiet or acoustic or something that I was just, you know, recording at home or whatever. Like I knew we'd be able to like get a real, like a good drum sound and um, have it be 
real full sounding band record. Um, but at the same time, I still had the same interests and ideas that had gone into other portostatic records and wanted to incorporate, you know, some strings and some different sounds. And, um, so I feel like it's, it's kind of an interesting combination of full band rock record and, uh, quieter kind of portostatic stuff, you know. To realize the rock record that he had envisioned for Bright Ideas, McComb brings in his brother Matt to play drums and Super Chunk bandmate Jim Wilbur to play bass, which would mark Wilbur's first contributions to portostatic material since the project's debut 7-inch in 1993. I mean, I think that he had played in portostatic, or maybe he started playing in portostatic around that time. So many different people have played in portostatic. <laughs> like at, at, at one point in the 90s, Ash from Polvo... And Sarah Bell from Shark Quest um, and Angels of Epistemology and John Worcester were all in Portostatic. Like it's it's been like there's been a lot of different people in Portostatic. Um, but Jim played bass in his band in college, this band called Humidifier. And so bass was not a new thing to him. It's just that he didn't play bass in in Superchunk. But like I think that when he moved to North Carolina to be in Superchunk, like I don't even know if he had a an electric guitar like i think maybe he had to buy one <laughs> i can't remember but but so bass was like an instrument that he was familiar with it was cool to be able to still be in a band with jim you know and my brother who had played on nature of sap and um some other portostatic records he's eight years younger than me i don't know what year he started playing drums but i think he mainly kind of like grew into playing drums like when he was in college and stuff you know i mean he played in high school but like um, in terms of when he started playing jazz with jazz groups and other other bands, that probably happened, you know, when he was in school. Like I said, we started playing together in the '90s when I was making Nature of Sap. I think that was the first record that that he played on. And uh, you know, now I mean, he's played with a lot of different people. He he plays in Bon Iver and he plays with Sylvanesso sometimes. And um, yeah, he's he's amazing. He has really cool ideas. He plays in Lamb Chop. In Lamb Chop, he's playing drums, but he's also doing like like um, modular s- synthesizer stuff. So yeah, it's, it was a cool opportunity to have a power trio. Recording sessions for the album would take place at Tiny Telephone in San Francisco, California, and would be engineered by the late Tim Mooney of American Music Club and Sun Kill Moon. To make a portostatic record, you know, I had never gone to another city just with the purpose of doing that. Mm-hmm. Um so it, I was definitely like taking a step that I hadn't with the portostatic record before um, in terms of committing to this process that's normally something like Superchunk would have done. I think that um, I just heard records that I liked the way they sounded coming out of there. I had read about it. Um, and, you know, we have friends in San Francisco. It just seemed like a cool place to go. And then once... Once I knew that Tim Mooney worked there, like that was another very appealing thing about that. I mean, Tim is someone that I I knew we had played with um, Toiling Midgets when he was in Toiling Midgets. I We had played with American Music Club when he was in American Music Club, and I was such a huge fan of the AMC records he plays on and his playing live. I mean, he's just like an amazing drummer. And so... The fact that he was an engineer that worked there was like a really cool, attractive thing, 
that made me want to work there as well. I really liked the John Vanderslice records that I had heard that I know it's his studio and, and I thought his record sounded cool. Um, but then working with Tim was also like just a really cool bonus. So I emailed with him and sent him some demos and we flew out there and Matt and Jim and I stayed at um, Mark Eitzel's house because he was out of town. And so Eitzel let us stay in his house for a few days. So that was cool. Studio, it was in a really cool like warehouse area and like right across the alleyway, it wasn't really a street. It was kind of like a courtyard in this warehouse area was the um, research uh, laboratories. Sorry, I'm blanking on the name of that place. Um, uh, survival research laboratories. So when you start looking up survival research laboratories on YouTube, you will find some amazing shit because they were this um, group started by a guy named Mark Pauline in the late seventies or early eighties. And like, I knew of them because in college, like people get these videotapes of that they had made where they would like build these robots that would like destroy each other and like, and like destroy things. And they would like film these videos under like overpasses in San Francisco and stuff, like just like crazy industrial kind of shit. And like the, the studio shared like a driveway basically with survival research labs. And I was like, wow, that's wild. But, um, Studio itself was cool. I mean, like vintage gear, obviously, based on like Vanderslice's, you know, tastes and interests. Control room that kind of looked down over, if I remember correctly, like looked down over into the studio, like the into the live room. The live room was more like like a floor below kind of. And I think that I was set up in a in a room with like my amp and my pedals and stuff. And then my brother was out in the live room and then Jim was in like a booth with his bass amp or maybe his amp was in the booth and Jim was out in the room. I can't remember, but you know, like we tracked everything live on the full band stuff and that probably took a two or three days. And then Matt and Jim went home and then I kept working with Tim, like doing overdubs and vocals and um, I got Tim to play drums on a song and, got Danny from AMC to, to play bass on a song and Jason who played piano with Heitzel and AMC played piano and a woman in Genevieve from a band called Heavenly States played violin. So it was just another cool thing to be in this other town and get to play with these musicians that I, that I knew, but didn't live near and I couldn't normally get to work with them and to get them to play on a record was, was just another really cool um, aspect of that. Um, and then I knew that I couldn't really afford to be gone from home that long or afford to stay out in San Francisco that long to mix the whole record. So, um, you know, I really like working with Brian Paulson and I've worked on with him on a bunch of stuff. And so always planned on bringing the record back to North Carolina to mix in Brian's studio. And in the end, they made a record. <laughs>
Bright Ideas opens with the album's title track, a mid-tempo number that includes laid-back acoustic strums, distorted bass, and mechanical-like drums with just the right amount of murkiness that when combined with Macan's hushed vocal performance creates an uneasy sense of encroaching darkness. And though this ominous mood is not necessarily indicative of the music that will follow, Bright Ideas does act as a proper opener and that it introduces lyrical themes that will be present throughout the record. It's interesting, like this was one that I could never, I never felt like I topped the, the demo of this song. You know, like sometimes you record a demo and you just get so attached to the way that is and then you're just trying to recreate that in the studio. And I, I don't know if I ever did and I don't love my singing on it, but I still think it's a cool song. And I'm, like I said, I was really psyched that I got Tim to play drums on it. He's just got a cool feel. And um, I think that he really kind of understood what I was going for with that. And it was trying to have it kind of dark. I feel like the whole um, record is slightly dark in the sense that it's it's really a product of like the bush era <laughs> politically you know and and like how that affects a person living in that mm-hmm. psychologically it's a weird record that kind of tries to capture like darkness of the bush era this era of just like craven political power and war and xenophobia and all the things that came with the bush era but at the same time like we just had a kid and like trying to it's like that weird thing which i think sometimes leads to um a dark outlook on the world like you're supposed to be happy because like you know you have all these things um when i say things i mean like you have these good things in your life like family kid you know you're comfortable but then you see what's happening in the world at large and it's, and it's awful, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so trying to not just only see the darkness and and like acknowledge that like the good things in your life, kind of a perpetual struggle really. And so bright ideas is kind of, I guess like the pessimistic side of that, the song, (laughs) song bright ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that like sound wise, Bright Ideas and Chuck Stop cassettes and maybe a couple others to a certain extent are um, definitely influenced by like Brazilian music, which I was listening to a lot and still do. Uh, you know, I made a whole EP of Brazilian covers and uh, the kind of like combination of like acoustic guitars and like fuzz tone guitars. Um, and the drum sound on that, I think, was definitely influenced by Tropicalia kind of things. remember what we used on the bass and like one thing that we would often um try to employ with when i was working with brian is brian had this little cigarette pack amp i can't remember who would make them but like it's literally like an amp made out of a cigarette pack had a little speaker in it 
but it was really good if you used it as like an overdrive thing. I think we might have put that on the bass for the fuzz bass on that. I can't remember exactly. And I think that might have also been the sound at the beginning. Continuing the lyrical cynicism of the previous track, but pairing it with a more upbeat musical backing, the anthemic power pop of I'm Through With People shines with its tight arrangement and hooky chorus. But the song is just, yeah, just again, this kind of the general misanthropy um, that I can sometimes get into that headspace, not in a good way. Um, I mean, that's the thing about like writing songs is like, in some ways I'm so formed by like growing up listening to the radio, you know, that even like the darkest songs still have to have a really catchy hook and be <laughs> something you want to listen to. And it's like if the music and the lyrics are both super dark, then that's like almost a bridge too far for me. So when the lyrics are dark, then maybe the song has to be catchy. The songs that are like the real rock band songs, like Through With People, White Wave, Little Fern, Soft Rewind, and most of them, um, we pretty much play live, you know. And then um, I do remember that overdubbing... The guitar solos on a lot of these i was getting to use some of the pedals that they had there um and i think one of them i might have borrowed from itzel i can't remember there was it was one of those um it's like a distortion pedal or like an overdrive pedal it's like gold it has an archer on it or like uh what do you call it what's the mythological creature a centaur it was like i'd never used that pedal before though i guess it's kind of a legendary um pedal clon k-l-o-n centaur or something like that and um and that was an awesome distortion box. And like I said, I hadn't ever really used that before. And then I was using that and, and I can't remember what the delay pedal was that I was borrowing, maybe like a Maxon or something like that. But um, but it was fun just to, you know, like I had my normal stuff. I was using probably Tube Screamer and a Rat or something like that. But it was kind of cool to use a couple of these pedals that I hadn't used before. Pretty sure that um, I was using a, a Strat that I have and a telecaster a stratton telly the telly is like one that i got on ebay from one of those people that does like they put them together from different pieces and like the neck and the hardware were like old and then the body was like the body was maybe like a newer body that they had quote unquote like what do you call it when you like kind of make something older like you age it or something like that 
it was awesome guitar and the pickups were great. I played that on there. And it was funny is that like later down the road, like that body that they had like turned into a relic, like got it basically like had like worms and insects or something in it. Like hardware just started falling out of it because the wood had been like eaten away. I eventually bought another blank body and then attached all that same other the hardware and the neck and everything to a different body. Um, which I still have now, but at the time, I'm pretty sure I was still using that one. Unlike Super Chunk, where I'm usually playing my Marauder or, or occasionally different guitars, but on recording sessions. But um, but on that record, I'm, I probably brought my Strat and my Tony on there. The track White Wave is the type of infectious barn burner that McCann seems to effortlessly create, making him one of indie rock's most reliable practitioners of songcraft. Personally, I had a great childhood and, you know, growing up in South Florida in the 70s, listening to the radio and feeling like things are good. And then, you know, you get old enough to look back and go like, well, I mean, things were good for me, but like, were things really good in the world? <laughs> um, you know, not really. You know, that's kind of what that is about. Uh, and that was, um, again, just having fun. I mean, lyrics are dark, but enjoying having like a rock band to play songs like that with, you know. guitar solo about to come in. Corrosion's conformity is really good for this. And it's clearly an overdub. So it's like the guitar's already on there playing the riff or whatever, but then the solo's about to come in and there's just this blast of feedback when the guy turns up the volume on his guitar to overdub the guitar solo. Uh, I always like that. It's just like, yeah, it's obviously you're not trying to make it sound like it's not an overdub. It's just this other thing's about to come in at like twice the volume of everything else. 
um, and I, I still enjoy that. striving melodies and soaring string flourishes is an unabashedly sweet number and an instant Macon classic. It's the type of song that just feels like it could have always existed. That's always a real goal, you know, just to have it feel like it's just a, a song that can just kind of exist on its own. And I really like that song. I'm annoyed whenever I think about trying to play it because I wrote it in a weird tuning and it has a capo on it, which are two things that I never want to do live. So I hardly ever play it. I hardly even ever think about playing it because it's just like, uh, I have to like tune the guitar and then put this capo on and then remember how to play it. And, but it is, um, but I really like that song. I mean, like the riff, you know, like the main riff is definitely, I don't know, trying to sound like the who or something like that, you know, it's just kind of like a power chord. Thing, but because it's in a weird tuning it sounds like slightly different and I'm really happy with the bridge on it When I try to play the song, I'm like, what are the chords again? Like, I don't even remember like how I did that, which is like dumb, but uh, but it's a cool progression, and the strings make it make it cool too. And I like songs that have like a stop in them, like that. You, know? you can only do it like once per record. So again, like having a kid and being a um, being a parent, but also just being like a man and seeing like what men do to the world and just again like men just ruin stuff you know i think it's true i mean but i am one so like i'm a little bit i'm stuck with that <laughs> and but i'm also like a stubborn person so it's kind of just like trying to be open to learning from people around me you know following i want to know girls is the country rock inflected little fern
really think about what this is about, and I don't really know other than just kind of, it's like maybe about our daughter, but also sometimes like nature is a good inspiration for for songs, you know, and steers you clear of like politics and like other dark shit. But uh, yeah, so I don't know. It's it's a fun it's a fun song um, to play and stuff. Um, but I I don't know the exact inspiration. But it's funny, like when I think of that song, I think of like Dinosaur Junior. <laughs> so I don't know what that means. in the same way that the previous two tracks acted as a respite from the darker lyrical matters that permeate throughout the album. The Tropicalia-influenced Truck Stop Cassettes is a dewy-eyed elegy for car travel that features introspective reflections on unfolded maps and compilation tapes, mentioning specifically the Patsy Cline song Strange, which by the way happens to be the best Patsy Cline song. Slept all night in the dry scrub. Crawled from the thicket with a new love. Sleeping our eyes and I pull the bug off your back. You said, Leave me alone. Just let nature. I tried to write a string arrangement that was inspired by those Brazilian like arrangers, uh, like Rogeria Duprat and things like that. Obviously, I'm never going to write something that good, but like, but that was the inspiration for sure. And 
and have an upright bass, just some more like wooden instruments on there. I thought would be cool. Um, and uh, Tim's playing drums, and and again Genevieve playing the violin sounds great. And the I think the inspiration for that is thinking about being on tour, taking road trips and stuff, and just having like again like. 10 or 15 tapes that you just listen to over and over again uh, in the car. You know, it's maybe slightly nostalgic, even though I don't love to like dwell on nostalgia, but that type of, uh, just that type of memory. Track The Soft Rewind is a concise and energetic slice of indie rock, highlighted by McCann's confident vocal performance and Matt McCann's dynamic drumming. Summer of the Shark at home and played a lot of that myself and you know it's less of like a rock record than this kind of thing and but then envisioning this record as more of like a trio kind of rock record um, soft rewind for some reason reminds like makes me think of Ted Leo and the pharmacist like I was probably listening to I don't know Hearts of Oak or whatever his most recent record was at the time because I think he's so good at that kind of stripped down you know elemental kind of punk songwriting thing you know that's a cool song and another one that if i was to try to play it i'd have to like sit down and relearn relearn it because it's been because it's been a while
As we near the end of the record, we get the rollicking track, Registered Ghost, which, in case you were wondering, is my favorite song on the record. Yeah, I gave shelter to a registered ghost Had all the answers, so he claimed But his hands were not warm, they were cold And he needed my Registered Ghosts, like, I think it really did start or, like, come from a dream that I had. And, like, that phrase, that term, Registered Ghosts, like, I don't think I just came up with that. Like, I think I really had a dream where that was, like, in the dream. Um, and musically, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, like, Go-Betweens, which I'm, all, I'm always listening to. But also, like, the Kinks, like, Dave Davies' songs and the Kinks. Like, we, this lineup, or maybe... <laughs> Sometime around this time, we used to cover Mindless Child of Motherhood, which is a Dave Davies kink song, which is really good. Um, and uh, and so I, I feel like those were the kind of references for the, for the music of this song. And then Jason plays piano on it, which I think really kind of fills it out and makes it a cool thing. It's really cool until you try to remember how to play it and you're like, like what, like, what all these weird things in this song? Um, yeah, I'm, I like I like that song. With its propulsive rhythms and cathartic chorus, the album's penultimate track, Center of the World, compels with its juxtaposition of the era's political anxieties with a sense of youthful exuberance.
think I was just like, again, like Bush, Cheney, Paul Wolfowitz, like all those fucking assholes, Donald Rumsfeld, you know, all these just like craven, dark money people running the world and just, you know, like cloaked in like evangelical Christian bullshit, like just, you know, like that to me was like the nexus of those years politically and probably the last 50 years in American politics, but like specifically then. And I don't know, the black balloon image just, I don't know where it came from, but it just seemed like a good representation of, of that kind of like mindset and that kind of like evil, really. I like playing that song live and we did a bunch, um, but I haven't played that in a, in a while. the dreamy and tender full of stars. Combining brightly strummed guitars, subtle touches of sustained piano, and heartstring tugging violin, the track ascends to levels of profound beauty and nicely concludes the album with a sense of hope. Full Stars was like, that was like a song that I wrote. I don't think I had a guitar with me, maybe I did, but I wrote the lyrics at least um, at the beach with our daughter who was, you know, a baby at the time, like two or one or something like that when I wrote it. And yeah, so it's like really, that's like a song for a baby, <laughs> um, you know, trying to get a baby to stop crying or something, just sitting out on the beach at night. Um, so it's kind of like a nicer way to end the record that center of the world, you know, try to, try to end like on a positive note. just again like I like the song but having those elements just made it feel more like complete or something you know Genevieve did an awesome job and I'm and like I think she might have been maybe not the first and definitely not the last person to be like you know like you wrote these parts but like the violin can't play that note or whatever so so she was very you know patient with getting these charts from someone who's like not a someone who writes charts uh and still made it sound, you know, awesome. And, and, you know, like I said, Jason, it's just so cool to hear someone who can play piano and just fit it into a, a song in such a natural way. For the album art, 
Macan commissions Canadian artist Neil Farber to create part of its design. Neil was in a, he was in an artist collective called the Royal Art Lodge from Winnipeg, Canada, uh, with Marcel Zama and um, I'm blanking on the names of other people that are involved in that project, but um, uh, he's just a, a great artist and I had been in touch with him just about his art and I think maybe I even traded like some guitar pedals or something for some drawings at one point before this and then once I was working on this record I asked him about doing the art and this drawing just seemed perfect and I ended up buying it from him or maybe I traded a bunch of records for it or something anyway like I have the drawing in my house which is really nice and then I did the lettering like I hand drew the lettering and then um our designer at the time, Maggie Faust, I think, you know, cut out the lettering and laid it on top of the drawing or whatever for the design. And um, the back cover was uh, a photo taken outside the studio by my friend Andrew, who is a photographer. He used to live here and then um, moved uh, out to the West Coast. Andrew Painter, P-A-Y-N-T-E-R. Um, and he moved out to San Francisco. And so he, uh, took that picture. And I remember thinking it's like definitely the first time my photo was on the outside of a record, I think. I mean, maybe on the back of a super chunk record or something, but yeah, so that was kind of a, that was kind of a first having just like a big picture of myself on the back. Merge Records releases Bright Ideas on August 23rd, 2005. And though the album for the most part would be well received, McCann still had to contend with a legacy of Superchunk and the notion of Portostatic as just a side project. I mean, I think it did okay, not great. And like, you know, we did some some touring for it, which was fun. Um, you know, again, with a small kid, like I wasn't trying to be on tour half the year or anything like that. But uh, it was fun to do and, and live. Margaret White, uh, who used to be in a band here called The Comas, and in more re- recent times played with Versus. She's an awesome violin player and keyboard player. So we did shows with Margaret in the band, which is really great, you know, playing the strings on, on the songs that have strings and playing keyboards on other stuff. And so it was fun to be able to play shows with Margaret in the band. And yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, what's interesting is that when I, someone just who works at Merge today reminded me that the next record came really fast after this one, which I was surprised by. But yeah, we got to do some shows and I think it was received okay, but it was, you know, it's still, if people think of your band as being super chunk, it takes some work to get them to, to see a new portostatic record as like, well, you should pay attention to this now, you know. But I think people liked it and, and I was really happy with how it came out. It's funny that it was this came out in the time when, you know, everything wasn't on vinyl. Uh, Pre, pre-vinyl revival, so um, it'd be great to have it on LP at some point. In 2006, McCann would follow up Bright Ideas with Be Still Please, the last full-length album to bear the portostatic name. Shortly thereafter, Superchunk would end their near-decade-long hiatus and have continued to release new material ever since, with their most recent record being 2018's Excellent, What a Time to Be Alive. And even though Superchunk would reemerge as his main musical outlet, McCann is still proud of what he was able to accomplish during his time away.
what's funny is that yesterday I said, like, do we have any CDs of this still in stock? And they're like, we have 16 copies. And I was like, 16 copies on the 16th anniversary. Come on, we got to sell, sell these last 16 CDs. I mean, I'm really happy with this record. I think it's cool that it's unlike some other portacetic records, which are kind of like recorded here and there and, you know, like just more like, not in a bad way, but just more varied, you know what I mean? Like, I think that this, I really like how this is self-contained, like done at this studio with Tim and then mixed with Brian and um, with Matt and, and Jim playing on it. And when I think of it, I think of it as a very like, like I said, kind of self-contained, cool um, time capsule in a way, you know? So, yeah, I don't know. I, I really like it. I like the songs on there and um, I wish I knew how to play them. I should, I do think I should spend some time relearning them so I could kind of throw them into a, a set sometime when we're all playing shows again. Thanks for listening to A Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Mac McCon for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream and buy Bright Ideas and more from Portostatic at portostatic.bandcamp.com, various streaming platforms, and mergerecords.com. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.